For over 20 years, the Ladies of the Lake Quilting Society has been meeting. As you might have guessed, they spend a lot of time quilting, but they also spend just as much time enjoying each other's company. We have such fine ladies and everybody is very caring. They'll break into prayer or song in a moment's notice and always challenging each other to do something wonderful. Uh, a neighbor of mine started the group and uh, uh, she said, oh, and I said, well, I don't know how to quilt. And she said, oh, you just like it. Well, I was just hooked immediately. The Ladies of the Lake Quilting Society is always accepting new members and you don't have to be a quilting expert to join. It seems to me if I can learn to do it, anybody could. From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Bagan, and this is Glitter and Doom. Hello, my name is Michael C. Thorpe. I am an artist who focuses primarily in textiles, specifically quilting. I imagine that when most people meet you, they are not assuming that you're a quilter. Like, they're a little bit surprised. Yeah, no, for sure. Hundo percento. Because most of the time you think of a quilter, I mean, like, if you just said quilter to somebody, guarantee the first thing popping their head is like older woman, either black or white, you know? And then I got thrown into the scenario. I literally got into these quilt classes where I was the only person under 30. I was the only male and I was most of the time only black person. And that was so fascinating. And it could be obviously so alienating because nobody else looks like you. But I was very fortunate to have a community that really embraced me and my enthusiasm to learn how to quilt. Yeah, I'm thinking that like quilters seem like pretty nice. Like my impression of them as a group of people is that like they're probably pretty nice. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to be like, imagine me trying to make like this very soft object and just being like, oh, I'm just so mad at this. I'm going to like and then you produce it. It's like this soft like thing that everybody wants to touch. And they usually don't go hand in hand. Michael is not your typical quilter in that he's a 27 year old black man, but he's also very cool. Like, not that quilters aren't cool, but Michael is almost professionally cool. Here he is in Vogue, modeling Engineered Garments Fall Collection. Here he is wearing cow print pants and pulling it off. He has the easy confidence of an athlete, which he was. He played basketball in college and he dreamed of going pro. But he was also always drawn to art. I had went to college for photojournalism and I was like, everybody and their mom is a photographer. So I just didn't resonate with me. It wasn't like my calling. And so when I started just one, identifying as more of an artist and just exploring all these mediums, one, it was super liberating. But during this time, around the end of 2017, my mom purchased a quilt machine, a long arm quilting machine. And I've never seen one of these things before. And it's like this crazy thing of like this oversized sewing machine that moves on the like X and Y axis. And it's in the house. And I was like, well, I'm gonna learn this. Like it's in the house, I wanna figure out this thing out. And so I started playing around with this machine and it all of a sudden clicked that I could paint with fabric and thread. And then it just, now we're here. When you think of a quilt, maybe you envision an orderly, symmetrical textile pieced together from various calico print fabrics. Michael's quilts are not that. 
They're largely representational, depicting people, places, and things, although he does have several pieces that feature words, like a quilt in the collection of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston that says simply, Black Man. His quilts are colorful and bold. They remind me of one part collage and one part fucked up paint by number. Michael grew up around quilting. His mom purchased a quilt machine in 2017, but she'd been quilting throughout his childhood. Michael's dad is black, but his mom is white, and he grew up in New England. And so, despite there being a robust tradition of African-American quilting in the United States, Michael's frame of reference for quilting was mostly white. But then, at some point, he discovered the quilters of G's Bend. So when I really started looking at quilting seriously as, like, an art medium that I would explore, I kind of needed that push because I was surrounded by people who just like had a pattern, had the same fabric, made the same quilts that everybody else did. So I was like, "Eh, that's not what I want to do. And then I stumbled upon these quilters from G's Ben in this very interesting community that's pretty isolated of uh, black people who basically made quilts with what they had. They were very utilitarian. They were made from old tattered clothing. But the thing about them is they were very, very wonky, for lack of a better word. They, like, the seams didn't line up. They wouldn't be square. They would have all these interesting angles. It was just, like, something I'd never seen before. And I was like, yo, these are ill. And those are the ones that first put me on the idea of, like, there's no rhyme or reason. There's no pattern to follow. You can just do what you want. About 40 miles southwest of Selma, Alabama, G's Bend is a tiny peninsula, a dangling chad jutting out into the Alabama River. In the early 20th century, most of the residents of G's Bend were the descendants of enslaved people. One in three bore the last name Petway after the owner of a 19th century plantation. The community was isolated. One of the only ways to get to G's Bend was via ferry from the town across the river. And that ferry service was suspended in 1962 as punishment for residents involved in the civil rights movement. The sheriff at the time, Lummy Jenkins, which is a villainous name if I've ever heard one, reportedly said, We didn't close the ferry because they were black. We closed it because they forgot they were black. So you have this community of sharecroppers and small landowning subsistence farmers, and they're living in poorly insulated structures without electricity. So the women of G's Bend made quilts to keep their families warm. Nothing unusual about that. Southern Black women and women in general have been sewing bedclothes out of scrap fabric for centuries. What is unusual is the style that developed in this isolated community. Instead of neat, symmetrical patterns, the pieces on a G's Bend quilt are wriggly and wavy. Lines aren't parallel and corners aren't square. The quilts are expressive and, as Michael says, kind of wonky. I think of it as like an iPhone. You know, you, you look at an iPhone and it looks perfect, and but you don't think a human made that, you know? And there's a lot of quilts like that where it's like, it just came off like a conveyor belt. And then you looked at, I saw the G's Bend quilters and you were like, there's definitely humans that touch this because there is what you might think of as a lot of mistakes. This style emerged largely out of necessity. G's Bend quilters weren't shuttling over to the Hobby Lobby to pick out pretty scraps of fabric. Many of the quilts from the 40s, 50s, and 60s were made of worn work clothes, denim jeans and cotton shirts. 
If every last piece of fabric is valuable, why would you slice part of it away in order to make a tidy, straight seam? A quilt from 1950 by Letitia Petway is simply the legs of blue jeans sewn together, side by side, like a rack at a Levi's store. You can see darker patches where Petway let the hems out or where the fabric was covered by a pocket. The quilt is not a perfect rectangle because the legs of jeans are not perfect rectangles. It is very much not an iPhone. My name is Ted Kerr. I use he, him pronouns, and I am a Canadian-born, currently Brooklyn-based writer and organizer, including a founding member of a collective called What Would an HIV Doula Do? My number one area of focus is HIV, specifically around the intersection of, I would say, art and activism and culture. I called up my friend Ted to talk about the AIDS Memorial Quilt Project. If you're not familiar, here's how Ted describes it. I would invite people to just maybe close their eyes and imagine um, the mall on Washington, that huge, big, expansive lawn where the Washington Monument is, and picture it first with all the green grass, or maybe picture it uh, filled with people when Martin Luther King was giving his famous I Have a Dream speech. And then just take a second to reimagine it and the, the grass on the ground is completely covered in coffin-sized quilts. And each quilt is the name of an individual who died uh, with HIV. And that is kind of the power of the AIDS quilt. Uh, starting in 1987, uh, people around Cleve Jones in San Francisco started to make a quilt patch for every person lost to HIV. And then this quickly became the, the world's largest ongoing memorial to people living and dying of HIV. And then also in the last few years, something that's really powerful is that every quilt has been digitalized. So you can go online and find the quilt of, you know, uh, your uncle that passed away, or you can just find new people that you didn't even know um, lived on this planet and died with HIV. Wow. Have you seen these quilts in person? Yeah, lots of times. Um, back when I lived in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, I remember going uh, on a field trip. I think this is common of lots of people around my age. I'm 42. Um, you would go, at, your school would take you to see the AIDS quilt. There would be no real conversation about HIV or sexuality or poverty or government inaction. Uh, and yet you would stand and just kind of be bowled over um, emotionally by the AIDS quilts. When Harvey Milk was murdered, San Francisco-based LGBT activists and organizers, including Cleve Jones, hatched a plan for a candlelight vigil. The idea was to create an act of public mourning that, yes, would allow the community to come together and grieve, but also that would be a show of strength, a message for people outside the community. Look how many of us there are. Look at the power of our collective action. Cleve could see that the AIDS crisis was being neglected. And so in the same way that he understood that the candlelight or a candlelight vigil was both a powerful political and personal message, he also understood that the quilt was an important symbolic gesture that had its roots in, you know, things that enslaved people did um, in order to create blankets and warmth and memorial in the horrible days of, of early slavery. 
um, but also it was an American tradition where uh, women and other people who were not always necessarily given a voice could gather and gossip, which is an important political act, and they could talk and they could share strategies around a circle. He talks about how quilts are made up of cast off material, a material that is not respected or discarded. And in many ways, that is an understanding of how, you know, the virus um, was able to go from something that could have been contained and treated to an epidemic. It was because the people uh, who were becoming HIV positive were understood to be not as important to the horrible governments that were in place at the time. We have to remember that too many people live with illness in isolation, and that illness is is part of what we have to treat. Um, you know, HIV can be treated through medication, uh, but it also is social services and community and love and care and the, and the eradication of stigma. So I'm going to read um, one quilt, and maybe it's nice to give the last word to a person that was living with HIV that's no longer with us. That'd be great. Okay, so it reads, My name is Dwayne Kearns, Perver. I was born on December 20th, 1964. I was diagnosed with AIDS on September 7th, 1987 at 4.45 p.m. I was 22 years old. Sometimes it makes me very sad. I made this panel myself. If you are reading it, I'm dead. Michael has a show up right now at the Lysun Keen Gallery in Boston called Meandering Thoughts. It runs until May 29th. The quilts on display are pretty diverse in terms of their subject matter. There's some word art, a landscape, and a beach scene featuring a giant can of Pat's Blue Ribbon. But the unifying theme is that they represent Michael's wildest dreams. That landscape is of Kyoto, a place that Michael would presumably like to go. One quilt, titled Hoop Dreams, imagines Michael's NBA fantasies realized as he dunks on a white dude with a chin strap. Perhaps my favorite is a portrait of Michael's friend, the photographer Brandon McLean. He wears pink bunny ears, and Michael has captured his tattoo by quilting with black thread on top of the brown fabric of his neck. If there is another neck tattoo so elegantly captured in quilt form, I'd like to see it. I wanted to ask you about another piece in the show that you have up right now that depicts your family. Mm. Can you talk to me about who's pictured, about why you wanted to make this quilt and include it in the show? Absolutely. And so this was like, I would like to say the showstopper because one, physically, it's very imposing. It's the biggest piece. How big is it? It's about like seven and a half feet long and like four and a half feet tall. One of the biggest... um, issues I want to say I had growing up. And that is I didn't grow up with my father. And speaking about the show, the show is about my wildest dreams. I was thinking like, this is easily my wildest dream where it's like, let's go back to see if what it would be like if I grew up with him and my parents stayed together. But then also thinking about what if we got together now, you know, thinking that like I have the means and the courage to bring us all together, I wonder what would happen. And in the piece, it's my father on the left, going from left to right, my father on the left, me on the right, my mother next to me, and then on the far right is my brother, who's my only full-blooded sibling, because I am the youngest of six, but everybody else is a half-sibling. What did your mom think about this piece? Wow, that is a great question. And that one specifically, I didn't show her because 
one, I don't know what her feelings are on my father. And I definitely don't know what it feels like to create another human with somebody. And then that other person doesn't stay around. And lastly, I'm very protective of my mother, you know, even though she's a grown woman, I still am like very sensitive to her. And, but this is something I really want to explore and think about. And getting closer to the show, there's a lot more press rolling out. And accidentally, I sent her an article that like the header was that photo. And as you can imagine, my mom, when I text her, she responds pretty quickly and she didn't respond. So I was like, kind of read into it. I was like, oh man, this is no good. And so I was talking to her about it and I was like, oh yeah, um, I know you saw it. So what did you think? And it was so funny, just like off the cuff. She was like, well, you know, I was wondering why does he get any credit? Then I told her the thought behind it. And then she was much more one, like accepting of it, but then two, also very curious about it too. Cause then I don't know when she ever thought, if she ever thought about that, like being a possibility of us all getting together and like, what would that be like? There are a couple other elements about this quilt that I love. One is that there appears to be kind of like a picture in a picture, like you guys are sitting mm. in front of a work of art. So the one of the things I think about when I'm making work is I want you to like see all these details and see all these things that like you can take away and you and you can sit there and look at it for longer and longer. And starting with the picture in the picture, that piece that we're sitting beneath is another piece that I made for my last show. And it's this large work of my sister from my father's side named Latoya. And I've always thought it was real gangster when like artists like Matisse and Hockney would like throw older pieces into new pieces, like little inception type thing. I love that. I don't know. It's just like, you're just like talking to yourself, you know? It's like, I mean, what can be more narcissistic than putting your own artwork <laughs> in your artwork? Like, it's crazy. And then this scene is set in my current living room and with the hamburger lamp and, of course, bun. Bun is Michael's housemate, a bread box sized black and white rabbit named Jam. In Michael's family portrait, Bun lies in repose to the left of the couch, just on the other side of Michael's dad. Here, come on out. I'm at Michael's apartment. I just broke in. He's not here. Oh, what you just heard was Bun. Okay, I'm at Michael's apartment because Michael lives with my friend, Ronner, and the bun in question is a literal bunny named Jam. Jim Jam? Jim Jam? Jam. I think, I, think, I think her Christian name is Jam. But she's also known as the bun. She's beautiful. She's about, she's a little smaller than a bread box. She's white and she has a skunk stripe down her back in black. And, uh, well, she looks like a, she looks like a bunny. I don't know what to tell you. Um, and I'm here to feed Bun. So let's do that. Bun, do you have anything to say? I'm hungry. Feed now. Love your show, by the way. Thank you. Okay, first up, we're going to feed Bun some radish. Hey, Bun. 
Pane. Pane. Hmm, you don't like that. Okay. Radish, zero. Let's try some greens. The greens are a hit. So you can see the couch in this apartment that Michael's family is sitting on. There's even the hamburger lamp, the hamburger with teeth lamp. And there is, of course, Bun, who is, I would say, smaller in real life. Like, I expected her to be a little bit bigger, but I guess that is often the case with celebrities. See ya, Bun. I think that what I like most about quilting is it's going against the grain. You know, it's like I'm taking a art form that has always been perceived as craft, always seen as like beneath and not as valuable as, let's say, painting or sculpture. And I'm putting my foot down and being like, nah, this is as valuable as that stuff. And if you don't believe me, just watch. Michael's solo exhibition, Meandering Thoughts, is on view at the Lai Sun Keen Gallery in Boston until May 29th. 